Hi, I'm Brian Pearson, and this is the Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun And our bonnet boat was one As we sailed into the mystic In this chapter, my earthly love leads me to marry my high school sweetheart, while my heavenly love begins to direct my steps toward the ministry. None of this came to me clearly, so there was a lot of figuring out to do along the way. But I began to suspect that that was what faith was for in the first place. If everything was clear, why would I need faith at all? I'm reading from my memoir, Lost Rights, Leaving Churchland. This is Chapter 4, Part 2. And when that foghorn blows, I want to hear it. In 1974, I entered my fourth and final year at York University. My father had lost his job in Toronto, the result of a personality clash between him and his boss. Once again, my parents packed up and moved, taking my sister with them to greener pastures, this time to Smith's department store in Windsor, Ontario. I'd been living at home and commuting to school from our various family homes in North York, two more since my graduation from high school, but that's another story. It was time I moved out. I had bought into a summer gardening service operated by a high school friend, and I continued working weekends at the liquor store, so I had money in the bank. I bought myself a car, a blue 1968 MGB GT, with rust holes in the rocker panels that showed me the road conditions up close and personal as I drove, just by my left shoe. Then I moved on campus. I chose a residence at York that was an experimental commune of sorts in one of the new colleges. It had only just been given a name, Bethune College, after Norman Bethune, the Canadian physician who gave his life in support of the Communist Party in China. My floor comprised ten private rooms and a shared living space that included a bathroom, kitchen, and living room dining room. We could live as independently as we chose. We could shop and cook for ourselves, as the foreign students from Hong Kong did, or we could simply go downstairs to the dining hall or to the college pub to take our meals, perhaps with a pint of ale. It was an ideal situation for a young couple in love. Joan and I had started going out in high school. She had lived in neighboring Don Mills and was part of the Young Life Club that operated out of her school, Don Mills Collegiate. Young Life sponsored massive citywide events like Capture the Flag games staged in city parks and ravines. This ensured public exposure to attract new members. It also integrated the kids from the various clubs into one large community. Young Life's summer camps extended that connection even further, city to city and country to country. My friend John and I were part of the Toronto contingent that went off to Camp Saranac for a week the summer of 1970. 
Joan was there, too, with her best friend Karen. Joan was a live wire, with a sparkle in her eyes and a giggle in her talk. She thought I was funny, in the best sense, and Karen thought John was tall. When we returned from camp, we double-dated. It was a good arrangement. The other couple acted as a kind of buffer until we knew whether or not things were going to work out. John and Karen didn't make it to Thanksgiving, but Joan and I continued to date through my last year in high school and into my first year at university. When Joan graduated from Don Mills Collegiate a year after I graduated from York Mills, she went off to McMaster University in Hamilton to start in their nursing program. We drifted apart and started dating other people, but she decided after a year that nursing wasn't for her. She left McMaster and came to York to continue with an arts degree and also to get back together with me. We'd missed each other. Her arrival coincided with my final year, the year I moved into residence. She lived in a house off campus with some other female students, but she and I spent a good deal of our time together on campus, sometimes studying. In all other areas of life, my self-confidence was growing. For the first time, I was getting good grades. I was performing my songs around town and gaining a small reputation as a singer-songwriter, even my bank account was healthy with the proceeds of my various jobs. But how to manage love? All our friends within the born-again Christian community seemed to be getting married, even the ones who had not followed Dave Ward up to Cookstown. At least one of those marriages had already hit the rocks. I liked Joan. We had fun together, and we laughed a lot. I could get pretty heady at times, agonizing over my shifting Christian beliefs. She was clear-headed and didn't share my theological ambivalence. She was able to bring me back to worth. Our faith was a deep bond between us. We prayed together and attended the same worship services and the same Christian events. We continued our support of young life, and we became involved with several large homes in Toronto. We were well-liked among our friends. On the surface, we had it all. But marriage felt like an enormous leap from where we were. For one thing, I had rather enjoyed my freedom while Joan was at McMaster. I took Catherine, a porcelain beauty I'd been infatuated with since high school, to her university graduation dance. I let my troubled classmate Maria fall into my arms while we waited together at a bus stop. If it weren't for my uber-Christian values that demanded chastity— at least on the first date, my life might have gone off in interesting new directions. It was those same values that told me not to trust my misgivings about marrying Joan. That's what young Christians did when they were in love. They got married. What was my problem? But I needed assurances, so I went to see someone I could count on for clarity, black and white clarity, yes or no clarity, Dave Ward. If you're having sex with her, he said, you've got to marry her. Otherwise, you're just using her. That sounded pretty clear to me. It mattered little that I didn't actually feel like anyone was using anyone, nor did it occur to me that there might have been other options, like breaking up. I went to Dave seeking an answer to my doubt, and he gave one to me. I left Dave's place with my head spinning, my eyes fixed in a trance, 
and a plan churning in my gut. I would ask Joan's father the very next day for her hand in marriage, which, after a sleepless night, is what I did. He laughed when I put the question to him and was still chuckling as he gave me his answer. Sure, he said, but why don't you ask her? We were married at St. John's York Mills with Dave Ward presiding in June 1975, the summer I graduated from York. I had lost the MG in a car accident, so for our honeymoon, I bought us a practical Ford Pinto, and we drove it down the eastern seaboard of the United States, looking for campsites as we went. It was hot, we didn't know where we were most of the time, and it was not particularly fun, or romantic for that matter, a tent being a far cry from a honeymoon suite. When we returned, we moved into a basement apartment in Downsview, close to York, so Joan could finish her degree. I went to work at my old church, St. John's, in a new position they had just created, youth director. My job at St. John's was familiar territory for me, given my experience as a former member of the youth group there and all the work I'd done since with Young Life. But I had another reason for taking the job. I was beginning to wonder if I might be feeling a vocation to ordained ministry. I needed to test that out. What would it be like, I wondered, actually to work for the church? The seeds for this question had been planted several years earlier. While I was dating Joan in high school, her grandfather had died, and I attended the funeral with her and her family. He was in his late 80s or early 90s, a very great age in those days. That was something to be celebrated in and of itself, but the presiding minister didn't seem to have celebration on his mind. He stepped from the wings of the funeral home chapel in his dull gray suit and clerical collar. He read through the funeral service from whatever prayer book he was using, inserting the name of the deceased where the rubrics instructed him to do so. Nothing more personal than that was said. At the graveside, he read a few more prayers, tossed in some dirt, and dismissed us. I was appalled. Joan's grandfather had lived a long life. Presumably, there were countless stories that could have been told, each one revealing something of his character— All the people whose lives he touched, all the life-changing decisions he made, all the challenges he'd overcome, and all we got was his name? I recall with utter clarity the thought that registered in my brain that day. This was one job worth doing well. To bury a 90-year-old man without so much as a nod in the direction of his lived life, that was not doing it well. I could do it better myself, I thought, and I wasn't even a minister. The other seeds of possibility that were beginning to sprout in the fall of 1975 had been planted when I was part of the youth group at St. John's. Leadership came naturally to me, even among a community of young leaders. When they needed someone to conduct the music chorus for Resurrection 71, I didn't even have to think about it, even as I felt my ego inflating though I did go and see Tim Foley in the midst of the mission, confessing to him a spiritual conflict. I liked it too much, I said. Surely that was a bad thing. 
like the sin of pride or something. Get back to work, he said. And then there was that visit with Tim to Trinity College. I never knew what that was about, why Tim had invited me. But I was fascinated by the glimpse it gave me of life in a seminary. Most of the divinity students I met at the Friday Eucharist that day wore black academic gowns. They were a few years older than I, and they seemed so self-possessed, which is what I wanted for myself. And the worship, in its strange way, was compelling as well. The formal ritual conveyed something our guitars and our extemporaneous prayers could not. Reverence. Somehow, this was closer to how I imagined we would react if Jesus returned in the flesh. We wouldn't slap him on the back and say, Welcome back, man. We'd fall down on our knees. Despite these leanings, I had a hard time seeing my way forward. Would seminary really be a good fit for me? I was too willful, too headstrong. I liked my own ideas best. I feared I was not, at heart, an institutional person. This had been confirmed when I had gone off to a weekend vocational conference at the end of my final year at York. The purpose of the Assessment Conference for Postulants for Ordination, or ACPO, was to help the diocese assess people who felt a vocation to ordained ministry. It was a first line of defense against the crazies and a filter for the others, whose progress could then be measured against the initial impressions they left. I wasn't sure I wanted to be a priest, but I thought this might help me decide. As the conference loomed, I was down to the wire on a number of papers I had to finish and hand in to complete my coursework and get my year. The days and nights bled into each other, a blur of strong coffee and feverish typing, my desk strewn with library books and lecture notes. I arrived at the conference late on the Friday afternoon, blurry-eyed and exhausted. The weekend was held at a Roman Catholic seminary in Scarborough on a promontory overlooking Lake Ontario. The program consisted of corporate worship, plenary sessions for group discussion, and three one-on-one interviews, culminating in an assessment on the Sunday. After the first plenary session, I figured I could probably let the next one go without missing anything. I needed to catch up on some sleep and maybe take a mind-clearing stroll along the bluffs. I mustered enough energy to engage in the interviews, which I judged to be the salient bits. In one, a psychologist asked me how I felt about pledging obedience to my bishop, as I would be required to do if ordained. I wondered if he asked that of all the candidates, or just of me, but I had a ready answer, straight from my young, unguarded heart. I would have no problem at all, I said, provided I respected him and agreed with him. My interviewer took notes as I spoke. The rest of the weekend remains hazy, all but the final hour, when I met with my three interviewers to hear their assessment of me. I was given a copy, but most of it was burned into my memory upon impact. We would recommend Brian for further training, but that he returned to ACPO for further follow-up with respect to his conflict with authority. The purpose of this training is to give him an opportunity to examine the teachings of the Church and to compare them with his already formed ideas. 
We note with some concern the reactive nature of his personality and thought content, which possibly indicates the non-resolution of dependency and authority issues. I'd sleepwalked through most of the weekend. Now my inner Leo was roused. My inner lamb nodded outwardly as if taking their words to heart, but inwardly I was roaring for all the jungle to hear. How dare they! What authority issues? And reactive? Me? They didn't know me. Who were these people anyway? And yet, there was something in that assessment that struck a chord. Maybe it was the part about comparing the church's teachings with my already formed ideas. Maybe at 21, it was the curious notion that I had dependency issues, which, if it were true, didn't sound very grown up. Maybe there was something for me here after all, on this path to wherever I was going. My year as youth director at my old church went reasonably well. I didn't do anything to embarrass myself or discredit my employer. No dependency and authority issues raised their head, so far as I could see. Then again, I was on my best behavior precisely because of those words in my ACPO evaluation. St. John's was a supportive community that welcomed and appreciated my efforts. I may even have done some good in the lives of the young people themselves. Perhaps working for the man was now, at the very least, conceivable, so I took the next step toward ordination and began exploring my alternatives for seminary to begin my Master's of Divinity degree the next fall. There were two Anglican colleges in Toronto from which to choose. They squared off against each other across Hoskin Avenue on the University of Toronto campus. On the south side of the street, the low side, was Wycliffe. It was traditionally evangelical, representing the Protestant face of Anglicanism— This meant it emphasized personal piety and preaching over the sacraments, emulating the great continental reformers like Luther and, later in England, the Wesley brothers. On the north side of the street, the high side, was Trinity, the very antithesis of evangelicalism, emphasizing ceremonial over preaching and social engagement over personal piety. It was liberal in its theology— Anglo-Catholic in its liturgy, and heavily influenced in its culture by a self-indulgent nostalgia for all things Oxford and highbrow, as reflected in Evelyn Waugh's Bride's Head Revisited, which might as well have been required reading for all new students. On the surface, Wycliffe was the natural choice for me. My recent experience as a Bible-believing, tongues-spewing, salvation-preaching Jesus freak would have made me feel right at home there, even as they tried to tame my enthusiasm and reshape it for ministry in the church. But my understanding of God had come a long way since I invited Jesus into my heart. My youth ministry at St. John's had revealed these changes. I focused with the young people on the cultivation of a personal faith. It was not about believing that Jesus had died for our sins— nor about the physical resurrection, nor even about asking him into our lives as Lord and Savior. 
It was simply about a growing awareness that the one who created us out of love was still at it, and that we ourselves were part of that new creation. I didn't say we could ever know clearly and precisely where God was leading us in our lives. If we learned to pay attention, we might just discover the next step. And faith was all about paying attention. The notion of divine love, unconditional and unearned, in other words, the notion of grace, had become key to my personal theology. To my mind, the whole idea of original sin turned the good news into bad. It made every one of us corrupt to the core, deserving punishment and requiring a Savior, God's own Son, to take the rap for an offense that was never ours to begin with. What kind of God would even make up rules like that? It would be a cruel and vindictive father who, when something gets broken, like a lamp or a window, feels compelled to punish everyone in the household just because he's pissed off. What sort of father would do that? Very few of our earthly fathers, and if they did, we'd call them abusive, just before packing up and leaving home. But the real kicker for me, personally, was that I could no longer summon the moral indignation on God's behalf to make people feel bad about themselves, like telling them they were going to hell. I hated hurting people. The hurtful things I'd done in my life, when I dumped a girlfriend or put someone down in public— These were the kinds of things I imagined confessing before God at the end of my life, not because God would find them offensive, but because I would. I'd want to confess them. The language I had learned from my Jesus people friends began falling away. It had helped me develop a faith that was both personal and intentional. It had brought love and respect into my relationships. It had set a course for my life that felt good and worthy— But almost everything else about it, the need to judge people whose faith was different from my own or condemn those who had no faith, this just felt wrong to me, right down to my supposedly sinful core. As I teetered down the middle of Hoskin Avenue with Wycliffe on one side, Trinity on the other, on the one hand this, on the other hand that, it was not a rational decision that finally settled it for me. It was a concert before a group of impressionable young people. I was still doing my job as youth director at St. John's when I was invited to sing for the youth group of a neighboring church. Their minister was young and newly ordained, a recent graduate of Wycliffe. I took my guitar up on the stage and began singing my songs about life and love and whatever else I thought would connect with the experience of my young audience— After three or four songs, the minister slipped up behind me on the stage and whispered in my ear, Don't you know any Jesus songs? Well, yes, I knew plenty of Jesus songs. I'd even written a whole pile of them myself. But they were no longer the songs I wanted to sing, and I didn't think they were the songs young people wanted or needed to hear. Besides, what song about the human experience was not ultimately a song about trying to find our way, in other words, about faith. I switched gears at his request and played songs from my Jesus People songbook, but I know what I was thinking, as I did. They're all Jesus songs, asshole. I made an appointment to meet with the dean and to begin the process of applying to become a divinity student at Trinity. I will be coming home 
I've been reading from Lost Rites, Leaving Churchland. Thanks so much for listening. Next time, I enter Trinity College and begin my training for ordained ministry. But rather than the way opening, things only became more clouded. And then I had my heart broken. So it would be a while yet before I received my flight clearance to be ordained and begin my life's work. I hope you'll stay with me. If something in my story has awakened something from your own, please share that. I invite you to leave a comment on the Facebook group, The Mystic Cave, or drop me an email at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. Let's do-